Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Creative Control with Vish Hello. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. Listen. On the show today, Bri Webb, my old friend Bri Webb, is going to be on the program to discuss his forthcoming release, Free Will, and he's playing at Kazoo Fest this week, opening up for Destroyer. We'll probably talk about punk rock. We'll probably talk about family life, being in Guelph. We don't know what we're going to talk about. It's going to be fun. So that's coming up, and you're going to hear brand new music from uh, Bri's new record. That's really all I have to say. So let's just get the show started, shall we? Okay, we shall. ZooFest is back again from April 9th to 13th with great bands like Destroyer, Legato Vipers, Diana, Bry Webb, Cousins, Jesse Bell Smith, Hooded Fang, The Furies, Petroglint, Noah 23, Soup Cans, Bird City, Dylas Spasm Band, Vic NS, Vag Halen, Michael Furestack, and Jeff Barbara, plus Kazoo Print Expo, art installations, film screenings, and a pancake breakfast. For schedule, ticket details, and venue accessibility information, visit kazookazoo.ca. Webb is one of Canada's most distinctive singers, songwriters, and musicians. Based in Guelph, Webb emerged from London, Ontario's post-hardcore punk scene, fronting an excellent band called Shoulder. In the late 1990s, he co-founded a Guelph-based band called Constantines, who had a profound impact on rock music during their 10-year run. In 2011, Webb released Provider, his first solo album, and he did his best to tour the world behind it as a new father with a day job. On May 20th, the Toronto label Ide Fix will release Webb's new album. It's called Free Will, and he'll be touring behind it a lot this spring and summer, including a hometown show opening for Destroyer at Kazoo Fest on Friday, April 11th. Here now to discuss this further is Bri Webb. Hi, Bri. Hi, Vish. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty well. It's nice to uh, be here. Now, just so people realize this, we're actually in CFRU's HQ, as it were, um, which is not always the case for this show. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just pulling the the wool over under out from away from people's eyes. Yeah, because sometimes I'm here and sometimes I do my show elsewhere because that's just the way I do it. But it's good to be here. Now you work here. I do. And what's that like? It's it's lovely. It's yeah, a, it's a nice community hub. I found I started this job about four. It'll be four years ago in August. And uh, I had just relocated to Guelph, and I <clears throat> I don't know, I was taking a break from playing music, trying to figure some stuff out, and I think by virtue of getting this job, I ended up connecting 
far more quickly with a lot of people in this community uh, doing you know, disparate, interesting things. Um, and it's been, you know, it's continued that way. It's just kind of grown into really connecting with a lot of amazing stuff in town. Uh, yeah. It's a nice place. Now, since I've known you, I feel like that sense of community is really important to you, right? I mean, you like... In London, did you have something similar in London? Did you have? Did you feel like there was like a, a community that supported you and that you wanted to be a part of? Yeah, in the early '90s in London, Ontario, there was a really great uh, community of showgoers. You know, um, there was a neat convergence of a punk rock scene and kind of an indie rock, or you know, um, uh, you know, the, those kind of what were disparate at the time kind of came together and everybody was just going to each other's shows and there were basement shows, but there were also club shows. Um, and London also has a great, uh, all ages space, uh, all ages club called, called the office, which, you know, I think was instrumental in, in how I grew up seeing music and, and being exposed to music. So, you know, it was, it was great. Um, and I ended up having a really similar situation to what I have here now and that I worked at CHRW in London. That's like the, the campus station there? Yeah, yeah, as the music director for a few years before uh, leaving London and starting the Constantines. Right. Okay, so you, so community radio, I mean, it's right in the name, community radio. There's something about you and community. Mm-hmm. It's always been important. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's just the, I, I'm a pretty shy person, uh, and I don't, I, I've always had a bit of trouble uh, imagining how to relate to the world on a, a scale that's larger than one's own community. So um, I just feel like I can relate to, I can connect more with, with people within my immediate surroundings, you know, and, and uh, I like to see um, activism and and, uh, and art engage on that level. I feel like that's that's sort of where it's most often most vital. It's funny that uh, I know a lot of people are often surprised when they hear tell that you might be a shy guy <laughs> because, uh, you know, in terms of having a public persona, for as long as I've known you, you've been yelling into microphones and screaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very extroverted uh, presence that you have, uh, you know, back from. So, like, just so, uh, and I don't know if this is uh, valuable information, but we've known each other a long time, mm-hmm. and we both came out of this southern Ontario post-hardcore scene. So that was an interesting... I sometimes wonder about that period as what kind of incubator that really was mm-hmm. on us psychologically. Mm-hmm. Because we just... A lot of us were kind of shy, but had something within us that we wanted to present. And for some reason, punk rock really uh, enabled it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, do you can you kind of envision yourself before and after you engaged with punk rock... Uh, as an active participant, and I don't mean just as a listener, maybe, because I I don't know. Actually, let's talk about. I want to talk about everything. Well, I, <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about, or I can relate to what you're talking about. In that, like, I think if you think about the usual um, mechanisms or channels of of the music industry and trying to, I don't know, a, a band like starting musicians starting to make music and then wanting to find an audience or be discovered or something although i don't like i don't know how that if that stuff even works Mm. that way anymore but um those sort of that that idea of something was totally uh just not didn't seem within the realm of possibility or, or anything that i was even comfortable pursuing but with punk rock like i mean i was a skateboarder and i i connected with music through that kind of you know i i loved music and I, I discovered a lot of early stuff um formative stuff like bad brains and uh the sex pistols and um black flag and stuff like that through skateboarding and then um because that music was was kind of you know not didn't didn't demand like a technical necessary like technical skill to get started in you could play kind of loose and only know a few chords and learn and and get together with friends and, and work out songs with those limited materials. Mm. That was really inviting. And then the idea of, you know, uh, realizing that people were doing shows in London, Ontario at community centers and, um, and basement shows and like, and things like that, that weren't, you didn't have to 
send a demo tape to a promoter or, you know, try and get uh, through the usual channels of, of like, pu publicizing yourself. It was just you, you know, you skateboarded with some folks who were also doing a show, and then they just asked if you wanted to play the show. Um, so that, I don't know if I would have pursued music at all if it hadn't have been that uh, inviting, if I hadn't had that inviting a context but also empowering. Yeah, for sure. Like you could just you that. I mean, it's funny having watched it all evolve, and you know, even us by the time you know in the mid '90s, the concept of DIY or punk rock had been around a long time, mm -hmm. and now it's. I feel like it's uh, across the board in mainstream culture. Like there's, I've talked about this many times, but there's like all these shows where you like, here's how you cook things, here's how you make stuff yourself. You don't. We'll build. Here's how you build a deck, you know, mm -hmm. and like everyone's just constantly like, I can do everything myself, mm -hmm. and it's, it's sort of a f the the amount of information. Like it's a it's a free access to information phenomenon too, right? Yeah, like, yeah, and maybe the internet is punk rock, or it used to be. <laughs> well, I think it connects to that. Like it just is community a, and and sure, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's, I, I, I maybe it's is it, it happened so gradually that we don't because I, I I ascribe politics to punk rock and some kind of uh i don't know harder edge to it but as i see it infiltrating mainstream culture it seems softer like i mean so like when i say a cooking it doesn't seem like a political action but in a way it is you mm -hmm. know you're not you're saving money you're doing things yourself mm -hmm. anyway i don't know just this idea of of uh being enabled to do something by an external force this seems to have happened with you yeah um <clears throat> i recently was asked to write the liner notes for um, the new reissue of a Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet record, the Dim the Lights, Chill the Ham record, which was a very formative record for me, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was 15 or something like that, and mm -hmm. uh, and starting to play music. Um, and that was part of what I tried to address, and that was that it, it was discovering bands like shadowy men who were really engaged with that network of people doing their own shows in unconventional spaces uh that that was empowering it made it seem possible to be a band and you know do things ourselves to, yeah. to book our own shows and, and like rent a school bus and go to a festival you know of other bands that were playing at a community center in brantford or something like that you know it was uh it was a window into something that i didn't no existed before that i thought you know probably until i was 13 that that all bands were rock stars you know and and all mm -hmm. all bands were part of this massive un, un inaccessible system you know? right right um they were on a stage we were down below right you couldn't yeah so there was like a leveling of the playing field so to speak yeah um i'm curious about your family life in terms of how uh that inspired or influenced your desire to play music because um, for me, when I look back on it, part of my interest in music, I, I sometimes think that part of my interest in music or, or certainly underground music resulted from kind of um, mistrust of mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. And I had a strange relationship with my parents who were really discouraging of my interest in music. And I'm just curious. Uh, and that fueled a lot of why I wanted to play and what I wanted to play. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a little anger in it. But what about you? Did you have a support network or... Um I think the th the way I connect with what you're talking about is uh, when I was first, you know, interested in in playing, like in buying a guitar or something like that. My folks were very uh, pragmatic, very practical, you know, uh, and and didn't really. I, I think playing, buying a guitar, or like playing music or something like that, was something that was detached from practicality or yeah yeah like, you know so i think that was a bit of it was just a way of asserting my independence for sure mm -hmm. i would say you know um but they you know that said they helped me find a you know hundred dollar guitar in a pawn shop and and uh you know were encouraging i think they just wanted to make sure that i was legitimately interested and not just it, you know that I was going to take responsibility for it if I was going to claim it as a as a thing. Do those instincts now that you and I are both dads um, now, and uh, I'm we're still. I mean, you, your son is three. Mm -hmm. My son is t almost three, so we're still new to this. But 
do their do does it do our parents make more sense to us now? In a sense, like I don't know if you had a thing where your parents didn't make sense to you, but on some level, their worry, their overbearing kind of concern, like the I had the same thing. Like mm-hmm. think practically. Like that's a, a thing that parents will instill upon in, in you, and you fight it a little bit because mm-hmm. you're a kid and you don't know any better, maybe, but. Have you seen the light, so to speak, in terms of where they were coming from? I think I understand the vulnerability of my parents, you know, and the, the fear that comes with yeah. with being responsible for someone else, uh, like, you know, being solely responsible for, for some bringing someone into the world um, and how that plays into those impulses, right? Like, um, I, I really want to direct Asa to have a, Asa, my son, to have a, fruitful life but to be able to like sustain himself and to make responsible decisions but i you know um i i think a lot of that a lot of the stuff um you know any kind of inclination to to encourage him to more practical decisions even at this age come from a fear of like his own safety or his own like of his his vulnerability and my vulnerability as the person responsible for him right you know yeah, and that's probably where your folks were coming from. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, um, but it doesn't feel that way, does it? Like when you're a kid, it doesn't feel that way. You just feel like you're being oppressed, not right guided. Yeah, um, yeah. It's I've been thinking a lot about how all sorts of you know experiences, you know, varying stages, varying uh, levels of of trauma, you know, in in everyone's life give you context for for these things, you know, mm-hmm. uh, give you a greater understanding, a greater like, uh, tolerance for, for other people or your interactions with them, you know? Um, but at, you know, at, at three or 10 or, you know, 15, even I think you don't have a ton of context, um, in that way, you know? So it's just, you know, why are these people telling me that this is right. Um, it seems to me that until you're responsible, well, this is horrible. I mean, I don't know if it's horrible, but when I think about it, maybe you don't see the preciousness of life until you're responsible for another. I think that's, there. I, I know why you maybe hesitate <laughs> saying that. It sounds like very heavy handed, but like, you know, I, and you do it too. Like in our, in our lifestyle, sometimes I find myself driving home at four in the morning after being in Toronto or something or being at a show or being on tour and just like hurtling through space in this metal box mm-hmm. in the middle of the night with de- depleted. And I don't even, I used to never think twice about that. Mm-hmm. I'm just doing a thing and I'm a human being and, you know, I certainly I have people who care for me and would worry for me, but I just do this. And now I'm like, should I be hurtling through space? Like mm-hmm. I've, I've, I have a real responsibility here. And it sort of re, for me anyway, having a kid, it, it recalibrates your system in terms of what is important. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I like I, I, I relate to that in that I think for part of my life, especially as a musician, and when I was touring and, um, you know, committed more to that lifestyle, there was this, um, uh, I don't know, detachment from from reality or something, yeah. or, you know, from a, a, a certain level of reality or a, a detachment from, um, I don't know, uh, you feel a mortality little, yeah, exactly. You feel a little immortal. Yeah. Uh, so I, this is, I think certainly since ASO arrived, I've felt more, uh, aware of that from moment to moment mm-hmm. than I, I was for years before anyway, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't. It's. I want to ask you about because uh, you mentioned buying a guitar or, or your parents helping you buy a hundred dollar guitar. What drew you to that instrument? Uh, who drew you to that instrument? Were there players that you were like you were emulated? Uh, because you have a very distinctive style. Like a lot of people credit you for having a very distinctive and inventive approach to playing guitar. But I'm wondering where that comes from. Well, I think um, I don't know. I mean, I, it was a funny the period that I really discovered or engaged with music as a, a, you know, as someone that 
real like realize that I had agency in my my interest in that was pretty incredible um in terms of what was available even in main, mainstream culture like through the early the late 80s and early 90s um you know there was I was you know into ACDC and stuff like that but um and that was really early kind of interest in the guitar um because that is definitely guitarist front and center in in that in that group, which um, uh, which young brother were you most drawn to? Angus. Angus was because yeah. I have a, a later. I developed an appreciation for Malcolm, certainly, but um, but Angus. I mean, is it was just a very you know, especially as a kid, you see a, a yeah. grown man dressed in a schoolboy outfit playing <laughs> an SG, uh, and is he's a really lyrical player. Yeah, you know if you you know consider what you know he's playing, but um, the. Yeah, so that was that was really early, but even from that, I remember you know listening to that and then hearing about the Cure and Jane's Addiction and stuff. And so around the time like ACDC was in my consciousness, there was much music, and much music was quite different at the time as well. And was like there was a show called City Limits that was on mm-hmm. Friday nights from midnight till like three a.m. or something, and and so I remember videotaping city limits uh and watching that you know on the weekend and it would be like features on the residents and uh and the cure and and stuff like that and so you know i I, for that to be available in commercial culture was amazing for a 13 year old you know um and that stuff all kind of melded together and around the same time as i said there was a lot of stuff that was associated with skateboarding like the bad brains and uh, and Husker Du and um, Minor Threat and stuff like that. And um, Nirvana was, like, you know, exploding around that time. Um, and I heard the Sex Pistols around that same time as well. So it was a lot of, like, uh, you know, pretty uh, eccentric ways of playing that were all available. You know? Right. Okay. And so was uh, I mentioned earlier that you were in a band called Shoulder. That's the first time I encountered uh, you and your music. Um, was that your first band? Uh, no, I was in a band like with the first proper group I ever played in was called SOS, <laughs> which stood for uh, Skeletons of Society. Uh, Skeletons of Society? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were... Uh, we played, you know, exclusively in my friend Mark's basement, and we would take <laughs> classic rock riffs, steal classic rock riffs like Sunshine of Your Love, and then just write, like, juvenile lyrics over top and consider them our own song, and then record them on, like, a tape deck, you know? Huh. Um, so you're interested in, you were, uh, and your friends were interested in some form of documentation even then? I guess. I mean, it was just available. Mm. You know, I, my father used to tape... Uh, songs from the radio and make mixtapes from me as a kid so I was aware of that technology of just being able to record things and that stuff was always around Um, but so that was the first thing how old old were you when SOS was uh... I think we started it in grade 9 okay early grade 9 so I was 14 or something like that okay Um, and then various skate punk outfits uh, you know in the in London um, that's a pretty good uh, that's a good age to kind of overcome that boundary of these this music is beyond me mm-hmm. like being able to play seems beyond me to I'm just going to try playing because mm-hmm. that t- I think for me and others it probably took a bit longer yeah um, I don't I, I don't know why I, well actually I do know why at the time the the person who first told me that it was possible to like just get a guitar for cheap and and try it was uh my grade eight teacher uh david garrison who was um you know he was in like uh, cover bands in london uh and he when i we wrote autobiographies in our grade eight class and i remember writing that i was interested in playing the guitar and i took the cover the actual cassette cover for who made who by acdc and put it in my uh, like autobiography book that i was (laughs) and uh and he he talked to me after I submitted that and just said, you know, you can you can get a guitar for a hundred bucks. And uh, he had an amp, like a beautiful Fender Super Reverb, that he had at the university or at at the uh, elementary school. Mm-hmm. In and he just would set it up in this room behind the gym and let me 
plug this guitar that I had gotten at a pawn shop in there, like during recess, and play a guitar. Wow! Um, that's, yeah, that's that was amazing. When I started, but he so that was you know just for someone to say, no, a guitar isn't like a thousand dollars, or you know you can yeah. you can find something. And the first guitar I had was ridiculous. It was like a spiky red, like it looked like something out of a um, like Judas Priest video. Okay, or something, you know? <laughs> but. Uh, it, uh, and the neck was like the size of a baseball bat, so right. that was probably that was a little discouraging at the time. But it was yeah, just to be able to to get a guitar and play was pretty exciting. Yeah, uh, you know, shoulder was interesting because uh, whenever we see it live, it was a really powerful rock kind of thing. And then when um, I got the record, you, how many albums did you just put out? The one album, Touch? one CD, and that, and then a couple of seven inches. Yeah, yeah, right. And there's like some compilation stuff floating mm-hmm. around. But the record Touch was interesting because it has this. Um, there's songs on it, of course, but then there's these interstitial kind of guitar things going on. Is that that's you? Yeah, Paul and I. Paul yeah. and you just—it's like acoustic guitar. Or yeah, something. I think it was just something. You know, at that time, like we were, we were learning about what what uh, was possible with a making a record, and some of the records that were coming out, even in the like hardcore and punk scene at the time, would have these like little interstitial moments of, yeah. of you know acoustic stuff or or you know field recordings or something like that. So I think we were just trying to kind of see what we could do. And um, Paul was a great guitar player; is a great guitar player, and and uh, we were just trying to figure out, you know, how to play together. Hmm. No, it always struck me as like it was one of the most unique records of the time because it, no one would do that. It was it was in a weird way kind of daring to just have all of a sudden these like little soft moments, if well, you will. I think we also just wanted to like we we really, you know, felt like a, an album or a record was a really important thing, and we wanted to put everything we had yeah. into it literally to the point where it was like 22 songs or something and, and like four track recordings it's behind me here somewhere the cd right uh and like you know the layout booklet is really deep yeah. like there's a lot to it and it's uh and some hilarious drawings some great drawings uh yeah. the uh yeah so i mean it was just i think we wanted to put we may have put too much <laughs> on one cd but that was just out of you know wanting it to be really part of something that's that we the way, thought important. That's, that's the way it works when you think something's important. You you explode, mm-hmm. essentially, and, and it's all there. The artwork's really nice, too. I haven't revisited this record in a while. I might slap it in the car. I wanted to do something now, but you were like, no. Yeah. Uh, it's fine. It's, it's hard to listen to stuff that you made when you were 17. Or, of course. You know. No, of course. But it's uh, to me, it's it's striking. Now, at some point uh, uh, after Shoulder, the Constantine started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, here in Guelph. Sort of. We, the Constantine started in 1999, and I was still living in London uh, in my last year at at CHRW and at school, uh, <clears throat> and so I was working as the music director there. And I, we hadn't, you know, shoulder had stopped a few years earlier, but I had learned so much about music and contemporary music just as music director at this. Uh, campus community radio station so um doug and i you know we had been friends we'd been playing together since early high school and um he was at school here in waterloo um and we just decided to try and start playing together and we knew dallas and steve through captain copilot which was your band with Mm -hmm. them uh and uh, from the button factory uh shows i think mostly yeah we i remember you two came to one of a semi-disastrous Button Factory show we played. Was because, it disastrous for you? Um, we don't have to talk about no, this. No, no. You know, at the end, of the Captain Copa at, uh, towards the end was strange for us as kids. And um, my heart wasn't really into it the way it should have been, I think. And I regret it, actually. But uh, it was a summer, and I was working in Cambridge. These guys still were in Guelph. And I remember the, that Button Factory show, there was confusion. I didn't bring a drum kit. I just didn't bring it. I thought that we would – I was just like, oh. I forgot to bring the... I had to work, like a midnight shift or something. I'm like, there's no way I can... So we ended up... Sh- I just remember that I had to share the drum... Uh, the, very kindly, there was no backline in Southern Ontario hardcore mm-hmm. punk. Right. You just Everyone just brought everything and took everything down, and mm-hmm. no one was really practical in some ways. You just didn't talk. You just were like, yeah, you take your thing down, I'll put my thing down. It's the exact same thing. Right. 
Well, and most of the gear, like most of the drum kits were held together by duct tape. I think the there was like too. a, yeah, like, a, yeah, please don't play my kit. Anyway, <laughs> I, but yeah, very kindly, the, the folks that we were playing with, uh, uh, I think that, or maybe you were at a, maybe you was saw it still st- life. Who was it, it might that you were playing with? Maybe. I can't remember which show it was. You saw us a few times, right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. But and that we, was the thing. So this was the Button Factory was the uh, great kind of rental hall show space in, <clears throat> in KW. In Waterloo, <laughs> actually. It's just off of, uh, yeah. I think the building's still there. It's like just off of uh, Bridgeport and Herb or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I saw, uh, yeah, like, you know, probably. Propagandi, did you see them there? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah loads of like great shows uh, throughout. What would that have been like ninety four to ninety seven or something yeah, like that? Yeah. Um ninety nine even maybe. Yeah. Uh and just yeah, that was how I met lots of people and that was that was part of that kind of network. You know, you could play in in Mississauga and Brantford and Waterloo and London and uh all these places in between, uh which was how we spent our weekends yeah. you know, and going to see shows at these places. So anyway, like yeah, Doug was uh school here and uh we just decided to start trying to play uh a bit again and ask uh dallas if he wanted to play uh first and then uh ask steve as well and we um yeah we just started i actually started rehearsing above call the office in london for a few months yeah uh in a great like place like space up there that was you know they had rehearsal spaces that i spent hours and hours of my youth in and and i remember when doug would play the drums uh particularly loud pigeon feathers would fall through a <laughs> hole in the ceiling <laughs> over him uh so we started there and then uh pretty soon after i moved to guelph uh where dallas and steve were living and we lived in a house on huron street mm-hmm. you know, six huron street and started doing some shows there and rehearsing in the basement Okay, so yeah. it was kind of a London Guelph amalgam. Yeah, at the yeah. beginning. Yeah, yeah. Um, makes sense. I think I was the community, like the the show going community that I talked about at the beginning of the show, uh, was felt like it had kind of dissipated a little bit at that time, and I didn't feel like a, a strong community connection to London towards the end of you know ninety eight, ninety nine, and and at the same time I was becoming enamored with what I perceived to be a really strong community in Guelph, yeah. uh, an amazing, like, diverse art community here, uh, finding out about people like Jim Guthrie, and um, I remember the Goods compilation was, like, a revelation to me. I just yeah. thought if, if like, a city the size of Guelph can produce a compilation that um, divergent in styles and, and so, so full of quality uh, songwriting and, and, and ideas that uh, it must be an amazing place, and we had played here, and I knew Aaron as well. Uh, Aaron, Aaron Riches, Riches. yeah, uh, through playing with Minnow, and and we uh, did a we organized the last Minnow show uh, at uh, down below uh, Peter Clark Hall. Peter Clark Hall, and like a, we divided the, the smaller version of it or whatever. And the show was um, Minnow, which was Aaron Riches, who went on to form um, Royal City. Mm-hmm. Chili, which was Jim Guthrie, Charles Jansen, and Oka Sharma. Jim, of course, went on to Royal City. Um, Blake. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Mm-hmm. Which is Evan Clark and Jim McIntyre and Gus Weinkoff. All of those guys went on, and Evan went on to play with Jim uh, Guthrie. Jim McIntyre went on to form this band, Sea Snakes. Mm-hmm. 
and you guys. Mm-hmm. So basically, like this weird. So uh, and for, uh, I'm not very being very clear, but Three Gut Records basically Came started out of that. <laughs> show. Like it felt like that was the first. Like that's ground zero for what became the Three Gut Records community. That's very. It's funny to to hear it all. Uh, to hear the walkthrough because <laughs> it is very true, and I. I uh, we may have like spoken about that a little bit here and there. Before, Maybe, but, but it was like I, funny. I, held, I, I think I ended up organizing that show because mm-hmm. uh, uh, the fellow that normally would do it was one of the first times I really learned how to put on a show mm-hmm. uh, because he couldn't do it. He had a, he could, he just couldn't do it. He he started the process and then he couldn't be there, and I had to pay everyone, mm-hmm. and it was the first time. But um, and Dallas Worley, Dallas from the Cons, videotaped it. Mm-hmm. He videotaped definitely Minnow. No, he videotaped, I think, a little bit of everyone. And mm-hmm. it's, there's a tape somewhere of... I remember watching the Minnow footage yeah. uh, with Dallas. Yeah, um, Pretty remarkable. Yeah, well, and it was like, I mean, that was a big deal for us. Like, you know, uh, Aaron certainly, see, like, for me, was like a kind of towering figure in, yeah. in, uh, um, in his own, you know, way. Uh, <laughs> but it was uh, in... in you know the hardcore and punk rock scene of the late '90s, and um, Guelph also just had this feeling. I remember talking with Doug about this, where Guelph just sort of felt like this DC, like like I, I, I we drew well, comparisons. Well, it has history actually, and with the DC scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just saw that like integrity of of the the and intelligence behind the music yeah. uh, and art scene here um, that I we likened to the Discord kind of community in. Washington D.C., um, and so yeah, just being asked to play that, and, and Aaron saying "great set" after the, after we played was really a big deal. Yeah, no, that was a magical night, and uh, I always think of it. Um, when I think about early cons and your writing, I I think of um, your reverence for the people you admire. You often would. Uh, you mentioned SOS, um, taking rock riffs from people. You would often incorporate other people's lyrics, like songs you admired would end up in your songs. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, eventually I feel like that ended. Like you, it seemed like you were trying to use other voices to find your own voice. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess. I, a lot of it was sloganeer. <coughs> like a, a lot sure. of it was like anthemic kind of like, this makes me feel a certain way. And I think it was really like, through whatever you know at the time i was studying you know poetics and poetic rhetoric and stuff like that you know in uh in school and uh was learning a bit about the idea of recontextualizing or or you know appropriating or misappropriating uh things you know uh changing the uh sampling yeah exactly i mean in a way for sure and and so i think i was just fascinated with that idea at the time and so would take I mean, not. I wasn't thinking that clearly about it when SOS were stealing like <laughs> sunshine no, no. of your love riffs. But it, but with the cons, you know, we we I I lifted lines from Young Turks by Rod Stewart and kind of things that were, you know, kind of beautiful lines, but in the in their original context, just seemed, um, I don't know, disingenuous or seemed. Uh, they just seem like they could be used in in a different context. But there's a lore. Way. But there is it call. It's a callback to rock lore. Like mm-hmm. when you're screaming, "Can I get a witness?" Right. Like I'm just like immediately like this is and and then you know people kind of it was a subtle way of getting to soul in yeah. a weird way. Yeah. Like it, it was it, 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 all of the connections you made. Um, you know, I on the surface it just seemed like people paying tribute to the things they love, but I actually think. When I think back on it, you were drawing from that power. Yeah, um, I think to be fair, like I think there was also we were learning that trick from Nation of Ulysses yeah. and uh, Springsteen and stuff, you know, like uh, it, um, and the Clash, like all you know things that were shout outs to to earlier things that were important to us uh, and and trying to make to incorporate them in what we were doing. Yeah, um, and to speak to like why that kind of stopped gradually i think i just started feeling guilty about appropriating some of those things you know and and started being a bit tried to be a bit more critical about whose voice i was you know taking and taking on and but the cons also then faced the inevitable like 
pigeonholing. Um, you would do the things you did. You would pay tribute to the men- the people you mentioned, and then then people would be like, "Yeah, this band just sounds like The Clash and Springsteen and The Replacement." Like they would just put that on you, mm-hmm. and so then you're in a weird like, "Did I do this to myself? <laughs> did I kind of give these people a, a map to where they can take you know where how they can contextualize our band?" Mm-hmm. It must be that must have been tricky, to, yeah, to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I, we just. It, the you know Springsteen meets Fugazi thing was like the mm. the most reoccurring thing, and that just kind of became comical, and that it was yeah. like that was the pull quote or the, the thing that just was sampled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from Stuart Berman, I think originally, yeah. and then used uh, in almost every review uh, afterwards. But it's kind of apt as well, mm-hmm. and it's an interesting two you know, two things you admire, like yeah, two entities you admire for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I mean we just kind of let that go eventually and and it became laughable and yeah you just let it happen and um i mean i just for me it was just i honestly i i at every stage of the game i think i was just surprised that at the opportunities that that came our way and and the always surprised that people were listening you know and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing i i anytime we played a, a place you know a remote place and there were actually people there that were interested was a pleasant surprise yeah you sure know? sure um eventually yeah. the the con stopped mm-hmm. um i guess it would have been 2010 yep okay so the cons stop um and the reasoning is that basically you want to start a family and and sort of realized that this lifestyle isn't they don't seem to match up yeah it wasn't a healthy i didn't feel healthy at the time yeah. it was a big part of it like i you know we'd been sick a lot or i'd been sick a lot on the road and and uh i you know i spent a, a few years just kind of floating and you know not really having a, much of a sense of home and you were in montreal mostly at that point well yeah like it was kind of the transition into living in montreal and and mm. meeting uh my partner katie um and that began kind of a or that that paralleled a, you know just an overall interest in in home and an idea of home yeah. and and a more stable sustainable healthier lifestyle compared to what i was doing and um you know there was there's all sorts of kind of conflicts that happen just when you're working with the same five people for for 10 years you gradually you know priorities shift and everybody has sort of different uh, priorities or you know yeah, or yeah. things pull in different ways and and it just it just wasn't seeming sustainable or or compatible sure at the time sure um and i think we all loved each other you know deeply as as you know in a, in a brotherly way because we had you know grown up playing music together and been through a lot together uh so we rather than saying you know i don't want to play with you ever again or i don't want you know this to exist at all anymore we just said it was a indefinite hiatus and and stopped and didn't do a lot of press about it and you know well i and i ended up being kind of part of this thing (laughs) because basically and i want to ask you about this because uh, what happened was we were all in dawson city and i i invited you guys to be on at the time i had a show on cbc and uh, one of my segments was the breakfast club so we had breakfast together and we did Mm -hmm. an interview and we all got to Dawson City, and then there was this murmuring that the cons were done. It was in the program. This will be their last show. Yeah. And when I spoke to other members of the band, they said, nope, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. And But your parents were there, and your parent, and Katie was there, and, and they were like, yeah, last one. And they were just like, what? And, and I was in the middle of like, what the hell is going on? Like. The communication, like, and from what I understand, so we had this radio interview, which mm-hmm. was incredibly awkward in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But that's what happens when the five of six of us were. No, Will wasn't there. I don't think it's just what happens with the Constantines. <laughs> what is going on? Like, why was the communication? Like, you love each other, but yeah. why could you not? Well, I mean, we. I think we were all kind of introverted people, or or n- none. None of us were ever terribly comfortable being like uh, outwardly, you know. Um, you know, publicizing ourselves or, or promoting ourselves. No, no, but this would have been an internal sure. like conversation that didn't seem to. It seemed to be oh. happening before me. Mm, no, not no. Okay. That's not exactly true. <laughs> okay. okay, I think we just hadn't talked about like when that interview happened. We hadn't talked about how we were going to present. Oh, okay. Uh, the fact that we were going to stop playing. Right. Uh, so, 
and it it did kind of come out in that way and I think I I probably just took the reins in that interview and said, "Well, yeah, mm-hmm. this is what's happening." Um, and then, probably because it was more. I, uh, to be honest, it was more. I, I initiated that, yeah. that end. I think you know. Yeah. So we're now at a stage where you are. I mean, you and I have talked about Provider before, um, which followed basically your your first solo album followed this activity. Or I mean, actually, you took a break. You just sort of stopped, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you didn't really play pub- music publicly and that much. And right. Well, the cons that that last show was at, in Dawson City at the festival in 2010, and um, and then yeah, I mean, it just took a while to figure out how to make music. I, I just you know realized pretty quickly that I didn't know how to make music outside of the Constantines particularly well. I had been trying other things, but without, you, had, you had this band, the Harbor Coats, right? And, yeah, um, and it was just. I you know I just I think I just needed time to to figure out what who I, who I was as a musician outside of that band you know so. and then the articulation I think of a lot of those sentiments and feelings comes through in Provider mm-hmm. um, that first record where you're just like I'm an adult now <laughs> not to cry. basically that we cover <laughs> the pursuit of happiness <laughs> but you, you it is a record about a coming of age. And, yeah. and also the birth of your son, mm-hmm. and and so you, I sensed after you released that record a sense of release from you. I got I got the impression that that was therapeutic for you, mm-hmm. and I might be reading too much into it because since then that record came out and you did sporadic touring. You figured out because I think part of why you were like I can't be a rock musician with a family. Part of what Provider showed you is that you kind of could, mm-hmm. you could tour mm-hmm. across the world and. In 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 chunks and be home still and be a presence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, I mean, it just it came down to realizing that you could set, you know, any kind of parameter, any kind of boundaries that you want around what you're doing. Um, partly, uh, admittedly, with the luxury of having a day job and yeah. a supportive family, you know, that are willing uh, to let to allow me, you know, to do this stuff. But um, yeah, it's. It was definitely. It, I, I felt very liberated by releasing that and, and realizing that it was possible and that there was an audience still for that other kind of stuff that I wanted to do. So yeah, and so now we're at a stage where you've got this record, Free Will, mm-hmm. and um, it also uh, I think expresses a kind of liberation. I, I mean, and it seems like almost is it a response record to Provider in some way? Uh. It's just it. It's just a. It follows, you know, some of the things that I was just being uh, introduced to. The things that we were talking about at the top of the show about being a parent and and sort of realizing the temporality. Is that mm-hmm. a, yeah? That's a thing. A thing. <laughs> uh, you know the uh, um, of each moment and and. Uh, and that kind of thing, and and so connecting with that, but then you know growing into that a bit more, and and also, you know, f- having more moments. You get a, out of the initial you know year of having a child, and there's a certain glow, you know, in that, especially in that first year where every, the you know everything just seems like magical, and and uh, it certainly is. You know, watching your child is is magic, but. After that, you st- I, I, at least for me, I started to connect uh, on a deeper level with all sorts of, you know, maybe more complex uh, emotions, those like fears and, and uh, worries about the kind of world that I had introduced a new person into, you know. Um, but the, but the, to me, like when I hear, okay, so, and I don't mean to interrupt you, Provider is such an, it's a gorgeous title for a record from a new dad because... Uh, I think that it evokes the responsibility. It, in a happy in a happy sense, it evokes the responsibility, but it also evokes a trap, yeah. it, or it evokes it evokes a, a closing in. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that responsibility it, 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 it just articulated so beautifully in that title, and in the throughout the songs on that record of you kind of grappling with what this means, what this what your role in this world is now. And then when I hear free will, like when he, when he, when you told me you were calling it free will, um, 
I kind of thought, oh, like it's kind of like, uh, I actually, there's freedom here. Mm-hmm. There's actually, I'm not, it's not a trap. It's not a right. cage. And so maybe I'm being a music critic about it and trying to connect too many dots. No, I mean, I, I, I know, I think you're, you're finding things that are there for sure. Yeah. The, I mean, the thing with f- free will, again, like talking about discovering the, or, or connecting with the, you know, whatever the, the, the precious, preciousness of a moment or the, you know, the, um, the value of a, a moment or the, you know, the connecting with the fact that you can, uh, make any number of decisions in a moment, um, came, uh, as a follow-up to, to all of the things that, that came with having a child and then that yeah. first year. So, um, this, you know, now I'm, uh, working with a three-year-old who is, uh, discovering his own, uh, agency in the world. Free will. Yeah. So, um, that's the, com- the complexity in that is that, you know, you want to, as we were talking about earlier, you want to find a way to help this person survive in the world and to be a responsible and respectful human being. Uh, but I also am inclined to just uh, celebrate every time he makes a decision that is the opposite of the decision I would have made, you know? Uh, Interesting. Okay. You know, uh, it's, it, it, it's invigorating and, and electrifying to see his agency in the world. Um, and it's a cel- I discover things about my own, it, it just uh, reveals things about yourself that, that you may have taken for granted. I think having raising a kid does that. Yeah. Because you're reliving life in a sense. For sure. Through them. Um, okay. So that's interesting to me um, because I also saw the, uh, it as a pun um, uh, because Will, uh, Will Oldham, <laughs> Will Kidman, yeah. is, not Will Oldham, is on the record. That, you're, yeah. You're that, a, that was why, I mean, that was ultimately, like as, as soon as, what happened was Will uh, Kidman from the Constantines was uh, visiting Ontario uh, for his brother's wedding, I believe, and was in town for you know a few days. And I had uh, some studio time, and we just I asked if he'd come up and and just uh, do like a a two guitar feedback uh, thing in in the studio for a song, and it was perfect. Like if you know Will's playing, especially Will's an incredible guitarist mm. as well, and and uh, so it, it just was was a, one of the my favorite moments in the studio of making this record and and that idea like of free will was kind of floating around because the the word will appears in I think every song on the record as well huh um but as soon as that happened that night playing with will it was that seemed like the perfect kind of tribute to this friend you know who I had been I had finally reconnected with after a few years yeah uh, a great just a celebration of that moment, you know. And are you concerned about the connection to the film Free Willy? No. <laughs> I'm not concerned about uh, that. What if people say, you know, the Spry Web record, Free Will, it's a whale of an album. <laughs> what if they say that? Oh, it's uh, killer. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. So, okay, so I, this is, uh, I mean, I uh, listening to it, I, I felt that uh, there were connections between the, the, the two records and that it's interesting to me that both are really inspired by your son. Yeah. More than anything. Yep. Yeah. This seems to be your main muse. Yeah. I mean, it's that was the thing with, you know, stopping making music uh, for a little while, was trying to figure out how to start again and why to start again, mm. um, mm-hmm. why to write another song. And, and I wrote uh, the song Asa, a lullaby for him, uh, the first song on on provider and it was the you know first song i had written in a long time and and just kind of made me realize that if you know writing a song for him uh was a good enough reason to write a song yeah uh, yeah you know yeah. and and so i that's been a big part of why i've written any of the songs i've written in the last three or four years um and yeah. and and on top of this record this and this as I say, this uh, evocation of a free will, the Constantines are going to play again. Yeah. So what? <laughs> it's an interesting trajectory. Well, I mean, that comes from that same thing of just kind of realizing that the you know, I could be gone, you know, next week or you know tomorrow, and and I just 
I love those guys, and and I think I've realized more and more, even since we were around, that that band meant something to people. Um, and because you know now, like for all for me, it just occupies a place of of joy and 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 goodness, and and so I just want to reconnect with it uh, rather than let it go um hmm. you know life's too short so um the the right opportunities just kind of jumped up in the last year and and because of the reconnection of you know we will and i playing together and and we had done our you know, crazy horse cover band at the silver dollar and stuff in the last year just horsey craze yeah yeah um these like and and all reconnected at sappy fest you know deloro dallas uh dallas's band um and Baby Eagle and um, uh, everybody was out playing uh, at Sappy Fest pretty much last year. And, and Except so, for Doug. Yeah, yeah. But we've all – so we've all connected it at, in these different ways and just seemed to come together, hmm. seemed to be pointing to that. Um, so what's the plan? I don't know. We, I mean we just sort of made that decision uh, around <clears> – <throat> like last year what happened was, you know, Shine a Light was our second record, and and last year, last September, would have been the tenth anniversary of Shine a Light, and about the end of August, uh, I think, like Steve or may have sent out a message saying, "You guys want to do something for the? Maybe we should have done something for the tenth anniversary of Shine a Light." And that you know, classic. You know, um, we were never particularly good at timing, so uh, we just kind of started this jokey you know, chain of, of emails and, uh, but gradually we started talking about doing something, reissuing that anyway, cause it's been out of print, uh, for a while and sub pop who released it, uh, in the world, excluding Canada, uh, initially they were really uh, excited about reissuing it as well. So, uh, we're going to put it out, reissue it with sub pop and you've changed in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe the date is June 10th. Oh, it's it, well, it's coming up that quickly. Yeah, June 10th or June 20th. I'm sorry, I don't, I can't. That's okay. Recall, but it's June. It's actually coming out. I, I was, I found that out like last week. <laughs> uh, wow. But, yeah. Okay. The, uh, you know, it, people have just been really uh, on it uh, in terms of getting it together to put out. Um, Steve runs. Uh, uh, you've changed records and. Um, and our relationship with Sub Pop is really great. Chris Jacobs, who is always our guy there, uh, has been helping out with this. And so, yeah, it's it's going to come out uh, mid-June, we'll say, anyway. Uh, and we'll have it uh, at some shows that we're going to play this summer. And, and the shows are still kind of up in the air. Yeah. Um, right now, uh, we're going to play, we can say that we're going to play Field Trip, uh, the festival at the Garrison Commons in Toronto. On We're playing on the 8th mm-hmm. of June. Um I I feel like I'm not overstepping to say that we're uh we just confirmed that we're going to play Sappy Fest. Amazing. Um yeah, that was a big I think when we started talking about shows that we wanted to do, that was one that I really wow. wanted to to happen uh and everybody was excited about that. The Sappy Fest in in Sackville, New Brunswick has has always been a close connection for us. So, mm-hmm. um so that's going to happen, and um, Steve and I are both playing solo there as well. Um, and uh, uh, I'm just going to keep going. Go. Uh, we're playing, uh, I believe, Peterborough Folk Fest on the 22nd of August. And the cons? Or you- cons. Okay. And uh, Arboretum in Ottawa on the 23rd. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, I, and then you've got your own stuff. Yeah, uh, and I'm playing a bunch this summer as well. Um and yeah, I don't know. All I don't right. Want the last few minutes to turn into a list of no, no, that's dates, fine, but, and we'll uh, we'll send people the in- yeah. info. By the way, I just looked up my calendar, and June tenth <coughs> is a Tuesday, which would be a traditional that release makes date. Sense, yeah. So it looks like Channel probably, Light's probably the twentieth of Friday. Right. I so imagine it's the tenth or the seventeenth. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, and I'm yeah, I'm gonna go out and play with uh, uh, Rich Burnett and Nathan Lore, who I play with uh, in my own solo kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're gonna play with Chad Van Galen and Cousins uh, on a tour of the Northeast and uh, from Boston to Chicago in May, mm-hmm. and then a bunch of other shows uh, in Canada and a bunch of festivals and stuff this summer. That's awesome. Yeah. Brian, uh, it was great to have you on the show. 
Unfortunately, we have to wind things up here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I hope it was helpful. <laughs> it was helpful. <laughs> it's helpful to chat sometimes. Yeah. Now, can we play a song from uh, Free Will, which is out uh, May 20th, but uh, is there something we can share with people now that they may not have heard or uh, um, or, or something that uh, works with what we've been discussing? Yeah. Um, do you want to play... Uh, I want to play whatever you want. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to play Positive People? Yeah, I do. Um, So, yeah, Positive People, I just want to preface by saying, like, I wrote it uh, a long time ago before becoming a parent. It's, uh, it was sort of meant, it is meant to be a a bit of a satire of, of, you know, any kind of uh, heteronormative uh, nonsense uh, and, and, you know, now being on kind of the other side of of you know having a family and um it just seemed like a bit uh it it seemed like a there, it was pretty rich <laughs> with the, with some some irony to, yeah and to i remember you i remember you playing this at sappy fest and other places and yeah. uh, it's a cool song so, before yeah. we go where can people learn more about bry web um bryweb.com bryweb.com and go see bry opening up for destroyer on April 11th, if you uh, hear this in time. Yeah, and the label is uh, Idefix, which is I-D-E-E-F-I-X-E, uh, and you can order the record there. Yeah, you can order the record there, yeah. and uh, kazookazoo.ca for info about that Destroyer show. Mm-hmm. Bri, we're out of time. Never happened on this show before, but we're on the clock here. So here it is, Positive People, from the new album Free Will by Bri. Bri, thank you. Thank you. Postures of Defeat Are these postures of defeat? Red with laughter, half asleep Are these postures of defeat? Brave onward Face a council of despair Wired as an Irish heart Animals inside your heart Flowers in your hair Hugs and kisses Postures of defeat Are these postures of defeat Bean counters And moon shiners Pirates of the quill Industries of innuendo, innuendo pending. The want is the will. Positive people are ready and willing. Positive people. Positive people are ready and willing. Positive people are having children. Strength through boredom.
strength through joy. Postures of defeat Are these postures of defeat Are these postures of defeat Stay shy Dress cheap Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at cfru.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.